0: Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. And you might
1: think what kind of
0: God would allow that? The God
1: who created heaven and earth, who is smarter than all of us combined, would sometimes choose this is the best way. Would you do it differently if you were God? And that's why you're not God. Do you
0: know that the most dangerous place to be is not in the midst of failure or setback, but rather in the midst of your greatest success? And you know what? God knows that too. So sometimes his people undergo setbacks to shape their character and strengthen them. Sounds uncomfortable, doesn't it? It's worth looking into though. And tonight, Dr. Corbett is in Jeremiah chapter 51 for How Babylon Has Fallen. We
1: dealt with ostriches and we saw how Babylon was be described as a it would be a city of ostriches and an ostrich was considered symbolically it was considered to be an, a proud neglectful bird because whenever it was under attack an ostrich would flee and just leave its eggs there now how on earth are you going to know that just by reading the text that's why it says in Ephesians 4 God gifts to the church apostles prophets pastors and guys like me are right at the end of the list teachers so that I can do the work and come and say, well, an ostrich is someone who was a picture of pride. They were there, they would puff their feathers out, they'd look all proud, but, but say boo to them and they'd they run away. And, and they would abandon their young and they'd be neglectful. So they weren't a caring bird and they were all about themselves. And so God describes the Babylonians as being like that. And so ultimately, as we take our time to look through this passage, I'm trying to do three things for you number one i'm trying to help you to see what the text actually says not what we want it to say not what we hope it says not what we wish it said but what it actually says Uh, i was reminded this week in greek class that jesus used a type of double negative and in greek just by the way, a double negative is not what it is in English. If, if we say uh, no, not, we mean yes. That's a double negative. The, first, the second negative cancels out the first negative. No, not means yes. But in Greek, if, if they say no, not, they, they mean absolutely no way. They emphasize it. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, 28, um, he uses this double negative. I tell you absolutely not. Will some of you pass away until you see the Son of Man coming and the kingdom come in its glory? Now, we would like to think Jesus maybe was talking about the end of the world, which obviously is yet to happen. But it can't be that because he said some of you will not taste death. So unless there's a whole bunch of, you know, a group of apostles tucked away in an Indiana Jones cave somewhere up in the wilderness of Sinai we've got to look at this and go, well, what on earth did he mean? And it can't be, as some have suggested, well, of course, it wasn't all of you won't taste death because Judas died. But in that instance, he would have said most of you won't die. But he didn't. He said some of you won't be dead when you see what I'm talking about happen. And so now we're presented with a problem. And I've actually written about that problem in one of my books down the back there, available on Amazon. So in other words, we have to look at the text and see what it actually says. That's the first thing I'm trying to do. The second thing I want to do is, and this is what I've been trying to do every time, is what, what did it mean to these people? And I'm, I'm telling you this because when I expect you to read your Bible through, I expect you to do exactly the same thing. And what's going to happen on a Sunday is that you'll get this kind of message and, and you'll go, I think I could do this. I could read it. And look at it and go, just make sure I'm actually getting what it says. And then secondly, what does it mean? Or better still, what did it mean to the original audience? And then the third thing, and this is where most people spend, I think most Christians spend most of their time. What does it mean to me? But in order to answer that third one, I think we have to answer the first two questions because it's really easy that if you get the first two questions answered incorrectly, you can end up misapplying it. So when we approach this text, I want you to hear my heart in this. I don't want us to go, well, we'll just skip over that bit because that's really awkward. We'll skip over that bit because that's got gory stuff in it. We'll, get, we'll ignore Job because he's just so depressing. And we'll just go, well, we'll just, well, I don't know where we'll go. We'll, we'll just read a verse out in random and then that'll be the last of it. And then I'll just talk about what I want to talk about. I don't want to do that. And I know you don't want to hear that kind of stuff either. So this is almost the climax of the book of Jeremiah. It's the second last chapter chapter 51. And this is how Babylon has fallen. Now to give you the recap, you know that Jeremiah from about the age of 13 was prophesying that God was going to come to Jerusalem and judge them and that he was going to use the Babylonians to do it when the Babylonians were not an empire. At the time of Jeremiah's writing, the Assyrians were an empire. And he says that this little-known king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar would come and he would be used by God to bring judgment on Jerusalem. And of course, Jeremiah was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was told, you're a fool. At one point he was put in a dungeon, at another point he was put down a well. He was abused, he was whipped, he was flogged, he was spat at, he suffered all kinds of indignity, and yet he remained... Faithful to that message. And so, as time went on and Jeremiah's prophecies became clearly fulfilled, he gained a lot of respect to the point when the Babylonians did come in. They did destroy the city, just as he'd been saying for several decades. And, of course, the city was in ruins. And the remnant, that is those who had survived, then said to Jeremiah, we're sorry, it's pretty clear to us now, you really are a genuine prophet. Tell us. What should we do now? And Jeremiah says, stay here. Stay here in the ruined city. Stay here. God says, stay here and you'll be okay. So what do they do? They flee the city. And they take Jeremiah down to Egypt. And in Egypt, Jeremiah says to them, you think you are running from disaster. You think you're running from Nebuchadnezzar. You will in fact be running straight into him and you will perish by the sword. Jeremiah has a secretary by the name of Baruch, a scribe, who is writing this down. And you can imagine the scene. And we will all be perished by the. All. That's me. And so Jeremiah has a prophecy for Baruch in chapter 45. And he says this Baruch, you're so disappointed. Uh, and he says but I want you to know this God's going to spare your life your life is going to be spared that's a great comfort but notice Jeremiah didn't say his life was going to be spared in a few weeks or months after this book closes Jeremiah will have finished writing 1st and 2nd Kings the history of Israel and Judah Nebuchadnezzar would come in And Jeremiah would die, exactly as he prophesied. So we're right near the end of this. But before he does, he turns his attention to the surrounding nations. That's why he goes from being the weeping prophet to being the prophet to the nations. And now here is the ultimate, or at least penultimate, chapter where he's now saying essentially this. What Babylon has done to Jerusalem, God will do to them. So now... Knowing this, that we have Nebuchadnezzar, who was just a tribal king, who's now becoming an emperor, conquering kings, which is what an emperor is, a king over other kings. Nebuchadnezzar, we know from the book of Daniel, I'm going to be referring to Daniel quite a bit this morning, and I assume that you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar's heart is being filled with pride. And I want to make just a couple of points about this as we read this section. The most dangerous place on earth to be is not a war zone. The most dangerous place on earth to be is not in the midst of failure, not in the midst of setback. And I'm going to say to you, and you might not like this, most of you handle failure and setback pretty well. You get upset, you get disappointed, you get angry. And can I tell you, that's normal and healthy. And you might not think that's handling it well, but I think God's actually designed for us to go through that. It's called grief. And I think most of us do it well. The most dangerous place for you to be is not in that place, not in a war zone, not in your failure, not in your setback, but the most dangerous place for you to be is in the midst of your greatest successes. And why is that? Because it's there that you kid yourself. It's there that you become proud. And here Nebuchadnezzar, he would become up to that point in history the most successful emperor that's ever walked the planet. And he suffered exactly the risk of success. Exactly the risk of success. And that is great pride. We're picking this up in Jeremiah chapter 50. We're reading the last few verses of chapter 50. We're in verse 41. It says this. This is speaking against Babylon. When, by the way, Babylon was the world empire. So this sounded ludicrous, what Jeremiah was saying. Again, it highlights exactly his, his prophetic career. Behold, a people comes from the north, a mighty nation, and many kings are stirring from the farthest parts of the of the earth. Verse 42 They lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses arrayed as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. And so here's you can imagine Jeremiah giving this to his, his faithful brothers and sisters, the, the Jews who hadn't bowed down to idols, the Jews who hadn't practiced immorality. And they're taken away into Babylon and they're in this foreign country where it's just full of idols and it's full of immorality. And you can imagine Jeremiah saying, you will see the downfall of Babylon. You'll see it. You can imagine how this prophecy would have given a a tremendous sense of of encouragement. But along the way, I would have, if I was one of the remnant, the surviving people in Babylon at that time, I would have said, why? I wasn't an idolater. I wasn't someone who was committing immorality. Why am I undergoing this horrible affliction here? And here's the point, And, and I'm going to bring this out at the end. What happened to these faithful people, this remnant of people, had to happen in order for you to be here today. There is a direct line between God preserving Jews in Babylon, Jesus coming, and us. It's a linear line, a direct line of history. This is not some random event happening in history that's, oh, well, that's irrelevant to us. It's not irrelevant. It is absolutely relevant. This is your spiritual heritage. Literally, God preserving these people. But look what he did through them. They went through affliction. They went through trial and pain. Persecution. And you might think, what kind of God would allow that? The God who created heaven and earth, who is smarter than all of us combined, would sometimes choose this is the best way would you do it differently if you were God and that's why you're not God you might want to look at the person beside you and go and thank God you're not God but this is the way God chose to do it through the path of affliction and great setback and it's into this context that the young 14 15 year old Daniel arrives in Babylon and one of the first things that happens to him he's taken to the chief eunuch why would any young boy be taken to the chief eunuch? You just fill in the blanks because the chief eunuch became his boss. There's a clue. And you could think, as I would if I was Daniel, oh man, I'm having a bad week. (laughs) And yet God used Daniel and he used that circumstance for you to be here today. So, Daniel and his remnant colleagues, I really need a hyphen with those words, thanks for pointing that out, Jeanette, were (laughs) great examples of the kind of faithfulness that God looks for in the midst of setback, in the midst of trial, in the midst of adversity. How do you handle trial and adversity in intense pressure? You don't want to know how I generally handle it because it's just ugly and I'm not ashamed of it. I am ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it because I get snappy and irritable and I'm probably not the only one. But that doesn't make it any more right for me to behave that way. But faithfulness. Let's jump down to chapter 51 and verse 5. It says this, For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. By their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. So you can imagine Jeremiah sending this letter to the survivors, the Jewish survivors in Babylon, and he says, God hasn't forsaken you. And you can think that they could think, but we've gone through so much affliction and pain. And what do you mean God hasn't abandoned us? Are you for real? God hasn't abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. And all of the evil and the wickedness that the Babylonians have done to you, I'm about to do to them. So God always, and this is a principle, and you can't always say this about narratives that you read in the Old Testament, and let that be a lesson to us. Just because God did it in Israel doesn't mean he must do it in our lives. But there is a principle when you see it over and over and over again, and it's this. God always gives hope to those who are faithful toward him. How do we know that? Because Paul, in writing to the Romans, near the closing verses of his epistle to the Romans, describes God as the God of all hope. The God of all hope. He gives hope. Jump down to verse 10, chapter 51, verse 10. It says this, The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion. The work of the Lord our God. And where is Zion? And up until then, Zion was a physical geographic place. But now Zion was wherever God's people were. The presence of God, Zion. Let us declare among God's people whom happened to be in Babylon at this point. So when Jeremiah is writing this, you've got to understand the background here is that the Babylonians thought Yahweh was the God of Israel, and their God, the God Bel, was the God of Babylon. And really, Bel, their God, was greater than the God of Israel, the Jews' God. So when God says to Babylon, you are going down, you are going to fall, what is God saying? It sounds like judgment on Babylon, but really what it is is god declaring who he is he's not the god of this patch of dirt israel step outside this patch of dirt and now it's you know you got to get a different tribal god god is saying i'm god <laughs> i'm god i'm the god who rules the earth i'm the god of all gods this is the picture the God gives about His judgment. So the Babylonians considered their, their gods to be tribal deities, just localized gods. But that's not who God is. Chapter 51 and verse 11, "Sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the king of the Medes." Now, I find this incredible because just as Jeremiah had prophesied, about the coming of the Babylonian Empire, now he's prophesying about the Medan or the Media Empire, the Empire of Medes. This is incredible and I hope to show you why in a moment. He stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. That is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple. So this is God's point in saying this. He's not just the God of this little patch of postcode. God is the God who created the whole earth, all the heavens. He's the God who created everything. He is the Lord of Lords. This is what he's saying when he's declaring judgment on Babylon. And this is one of the things that stands Makes God stand out. Here he is speaking through Jeremiah, the 70-something-year-old prophet now. And he's saying, Jeremiah's just saying, I'm going to raise up the the Medo-Persian Empire and they will overthrow Babylon. Wow, that's a gutsy prophecy. And it is exactly what happened. And here's one of the verses that I find absolutely outstanding. And it's Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. It says says this. This is about God. He declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God says something will happen. It happens. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Now let me take you to the historical account... Of where Ezra, who wrote First and Second Chronicles, describes this prophecy of Jeremiah's being fulfilled. It's in 2 Chronicles. It's uh... oh, actually, yeah, but sorry, we've got. The... I do need you to see this one. This is Isaiah. Sorry, and this is why this is important. Isaiah, having just said he declares the end from the beginning, Isaiah in 750 BC declares. Something that will take place around 450 or so, 500 or so BC, and it's this: Who says of Cyrus? Isaiah 44:28. Who says of Cyrus? He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfil all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. Now, why this is important is because this was. This not only tells you who's coming. Cyrus the Persian, it names him. It names him 300 years before he was born. How easy is that to do? Isaiah 45, the next verse, Isaiah 45 verse 1, again declares his name, Cyrus. So now we come, this is where I wanted to go forward. Now we come to the historical record given by Ezra and it says this. Now in the first year of who? Cyrus. Wow. Wow. Ezra writing this around 3.50, writing history about what Jeremiah said and about what Isaiah said. This is incredible. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia... And, and this is where I want you to see this. God is the God, not just of Babylon, not just of Persia, not just of Israel. But look how, look how Cyrus, under the influence of these Jews that have gone into Babylon, which was then taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. Look what's happened to these pagan kings. Look what's happened because God chose this path of affliction and trial and tribulation and hardship. He salted, he seasoned an entire empire. Look at it. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. Who's he talking about? Our God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Wow. Jeremiah prophesied that some 70 or so years before it happened. It was fulfilled long after his death. It's not even like he could have guessed this. And it it declares something about God. The God of the Bible who rules the nations is the God of who knows, if he knows Cyrus 300 years before he was born, if he knows his name, I'm telling you now, he knows you. He knows you. He saw you in your mother's womb. He saw you. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows things about you that the rest of us don't know, like your middle name and other things. He knows you. And this is absolutely remarkable as we go on in this chapter. And we're not going to read every verse down to verse 64, but it talks about how Babylon would be utterly destroyed. And here's the point as remarkable as it may sound to you, all of this happened in a land far, far away, in a galaxy, in a, in a, in a, in a time, so that we could come to know Christ today. It's all connected. All of this happened so that God could one day rescue you. You. And this is what we need to know. Because Jeremiah has already talked about the coming Savior. The one who would take our guilt and our punishment, our pain and our shame, and die on the cross in our place. And this remnant in Babylon would have had very little idea about that. Except that they told the Babylonians about it. Daniel witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, even though this prophecy was against him, full of pride. Nebuchadnezzar repented, it says, and he turned to God. And mercifully, he died. And we're probably going to see him in heaven. Isn't that bizarre? And it was his grandson, Belteshazzar, who became puffed up with pride and arrogant and took the vessels of the Lord's temple and just used them as common things. That night, the Medo-Persians overtook Babylon and conquered it in one night. Absolutely incredible. And this is what happened. The closing verse of chapter 51. Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. And by the way, when it was conquered that night, it has never been rebuilt. Because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, they they shall become exhausted. Thus far... Are the words of Jeremiah and the next chapter he's just going to mop up with a bit of history but in the meantime I need to give you the cliffhanger because Babylon became a picture of arrogance a picture of idolatry as much as Jerusalem was and that's why they were judged Babylon became this picture of occult paganism that sacrificed Women and children and were cruel to people and people didn't matter. They pretended that they were worshipping God when all along they were just satisfying their own pleasures. That's what Babylon became. And here's the postscript. The closing book of the Bible goes on to describe the Jerusalem in which Jesus ministered. As being Babylon it says in Revelation chapter 11 describing Jerusalem it describes Jerusalem and calls Jerusalem Babylon and in case the reader is in any doubt as to where it's referring it says that city which is also called Sodom and Egypt and then it says in case you're still in doubt which city it's talking about it says this where they crucified the Lord it has become Babylon and the closing book of the Bible has these final words declared Babylon has fallen so in order for us to understand the book of Revelation which we will delve into next year as part of this Jeremiah series You needed to hear all 169 parts of what we've just done. And then suddenly, I just thought I'd say that just so it sounds like a cliffhanger. I'm not going to complete that sentence, but you'll have to come back next year. Let's pray. Father, there are some of us here who have not settled accounts with you. And I pray for them right now. I want to help them right now know that when they leave this life, they'll go to be with you for eternity in heaven. And if that's you... You know that you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never given your life to Christ. I'm inviting you now because this God wants to forgive you. Jesus did pay the price for your guilt, your shame, your pain. He wants to forgive you and grant you a new life that goes beyond the grave and lives on with him in heaven for eternity. If that's you, will you make this your prayer? Jesus, please forgive me. Come into my life by your Spirit and help me to live for you and to follow you. I want what you want for my life. I give you my life. Take it and give me yours, I pray. And Father, I pray for us as a church that we will make Jesus known, that we will be a people who are not overcome with pride.
0: Jesus Christ took your guilt your pain and your punishment on himself to rescue you for eternity. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, How Babylon Has Fallen, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media. P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.